This is an RNZ podcast. On Thursday, Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters told News Talk ZB there were huge tensions between looking after the health of New Zealanders and saving the country's economy. Do you personally want to get us back to work more than the people who would argue that health is imperative at all costs? Well, health is an imperative, but it cannot be at all costs, and I'll tell you why. If it's at all costs, we can't afford to pay for it. We'll be broke. Hmm. So we've got to be rational, saying keep our feet on the ground, keep our eyes wide open, keep a common-sense approach. There are, ten- there are huge tensions, but enabling the economy to pay for the health of delivery is going to be critical here and into the months ahead. Pundits who are pushing hard to open up businesses and fire up the economy this week after lockdown ran in tandem with commentary pondering the economic cost of making health and lives top priority, especially for the elderly who are at greatest risk. And that commentary is happening all over the world where the tough action's been taken. Your money or your life was how one columnist categorised the genre in the UK. Here, it was an opinion piece by Auckland University epidemiologist Simon Thornley, which was published by Stuff last week, which was the first to put that cat among the pigeons. He said only a fraction of the deaths on the Diamond Princess cruise ship and in Italy were entirely due to COVID-19. Most deaths, he said, were caused by people's other ailments kicking in. So we don't want to squash a flea with a sledgehammer and bring the house down, said Dr Thornley. In the morning after, Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB was convinced after a chat with him on his show. They were dying anyway. They're old people and every single one of them had an underlying condition. They either died with or of, we don't know, but because we've become alarmed by it, all we say it's of, when really it was probably with, and the numbers were there anyway. Do you know how many people die in the world every year of flu? It depends who you ask, but the WHO, the most recent study, was between 290,000 and 600,000. So they don't bury them by a truck. There are six, up to 600,000 people every year die of the flu. 600,000. We don't close borders, we don't land planes, we don't crash economies. Currently, from this virus, there's a death toll of 40,000. 40,000 versus 600,000. No need for trucks, no need for alarmism, no need for an overwhelmed health system. That was on the 1st of April, 11 days ago, and Mike Hosking changed his tune on the border shutdown soon after that. But on that day, he left his listeners with this thought. The underlying issues in the Western world mainly are as follows. Junk food, lack of exercise bad air, and those lead to underlying health conditions. Virtually everyone who dies of this has an underlying health condition. 14 past 7. It was just a few minutes before Mike Hosking was reading out advertorials for non-pharmaceutical treatments on the market aimed at the older listeners seeking to stave off some of those underlying conditions. And they support the body at a cellular level because healthy cells help with the energy levels and the memory and the healthy metabolism and ultimately, of course, healthy ageing. Uh, so your mobility, your sleep, your immunity support still very important during this time. And so you're less... In the New Zealand Herald last week, under the heading Save Lives But At Any Cost, question mark, columnist Matthew Hooten raised the issue of intergenerational fairness. He said offshore experience showed hardly anyone over 60 would die of COVID-19, but the prosperity of an entire younger generation was being compromised. The long-term interests of two million younger people in particular, he said, needed much more explicit consideration. And Mike Hosking was back on the case last Monday, putting it even more starkly. The country simply can't afford the $3.5 billion a week bill for this, he said. And he complained that no one was reporting that people dying in Spain and Italy were old and dying anyway, though that was actually one of the main themes of the lockdown punditry in week two. Mike Hosking, for his listeners, ran through some numbers. 
it is a fact. Places like Spain, for example, have a death rate of 9.2 per thousand. Italy, it's over 10 per thousand. In, in other words, in Spain, well in excess of 400,000 people die per year, over 1,100 people a day. If we ring those deaths up on scoreboards the way we are with this virus, we'd be alarmed. Maybe so, but the 10 people per thousand who die in the normal course of events in Spain or in Italy don't usually die all at once, as they might do during a pandemic, so the services can handle it. As one doctor explained, a drive through burger shop can sell many hundreds of burgers a day, but if one man pulls up asking for 700 burgers and fries in one go, well, not many people behind him are going to get a burger anytime soon, or at all. Overseas, the pundits have already had this debate in the media, and sometimes it's been borderline eugenic, but at other times, more thoughtful. The Herald published one such piece on the 30th of March by an advisor to the UK's Department of Health, which first appeared in the UK's Financial Times. Camilla Cavendish said she'd been forced to ponder the choice between throwing the whole NHS at a bunch of old people who are reaching their final years anyway and damaging the futures of the young into the bargain. But in the end, she said, it was all a moot point if the healthcare system itself was under threat from a surge of infected people, whether they were old or young, as has happened in parts of Spain and Italy. On Mike Hosking's breakfast show on Monday, he told his listeners that this health stance at the expense of the economy was launched through a fear of our health service being overwhelmed. But he said there were plenty of spare beds here in hospitals because all elective surgery had been cancelled for the moment. How sorry will we be as thousands faith joblessness, we face debt for generations and an economy in recession for what turned out to be potentially not a single death that would not have occurred anyway. Hospitalisation that barely dented the sides, but a reaction, as one epidemiologist put it last week, that was a hammer to crush a fleet. But of the empty hospital beds he talked about, only 122 of them were in intensive care units. A report to the Ministry of Health on the 23rd of March predicted ICU capacity would be overwhelmed in less than a month after the lifting of social distancing here if the lockdown and subsequent actions failed to eradicate the virus. Few of the pundits claiming that the cost of saving lives may be too great have also considered what life and healthcare might be like post-lockdown if we did. On scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell pointed out that it could create a two-speed society. Freely socialising and working young people who suddenly require ICU care might come at the expense of pulling the plug on older people receiving the care who might have already done their best to avoid infection. And compared to that sort of situation, he said the morality involved in the current lockdown looks refreshingly simple. It protects the vulnerable and it saves lives. As we emerge from the lockdown, Gordon Campbell said the trade-offs and ethical challenges are going to become more complex and difficult to negotiate. But other pundits and politicians who've been warning it's a choice between your money and your life actually right. In a piece for Stuff last Monday, public health professors Michael Baker and Nick Wilson said if elimination is achieved here, the country could return to reasonable functioning much earlier than if they'd adopted other strategies. And new research on old outbreaks in the US might just back them up on that. Back in 1918, as the Spanish flu was spreading from the east coast of the United States towards the west coast, some cities were quick to put in place social distancing rules. Other cities waited. And once social distancing rules were in place, some cities enforced them for a long time to fight the Spanish flu. Other cities only had them for just a little while, possibly because they worried about the effects on their local economies or they just didn't take the threat seriously enough. 
That was the NPR business show Planet Money in the US on a paper called Pandemics Depress the Economy, Public Health Interventions Do Not. The authors of that said that cities which intervened earlier and more aggressively back in 1918 grew faster afterwards when the pandemic was over. And the other thing that also happened back in 1918, when the lockdown was eventually lifted, the virus was still out there and people were different. And so in a pandemic, the pandemic uh, itself has such a severe negative consequence on the economy that any policy that you can use that actually mitigates the severity of the pandemic and reduces the risk of contracting the virus and reduces the ultimate mortality is actually going to allow the economy to come out stronger on the other side. And so in a pandemic, these public health interventions essentially target the root of the problem that's ailing the economy, which is the pandemic itself. And that is the key insight of the paper. Emil says the choice is not between social distancing measures that end the pandemic but hurt the economy versus leaving the economy open and strong while allowing the virus to kill a lot of people. Leaving the economy open and allowing the virus to kill people will still result in economic damage. Only the economic damage will last longer because the virus will kill more people, injure more people, and there will just be more uncertainty. Well, there, Planet Money in the US was talking to Emil Werner from the MIT, one of the authors of that paper. The other two, incidentally, weren't public health professors, but bankers from the US Federal Reserve. Now, clearly, 2020 and 1918 are very different worlds, but the same methods were employed when that pandemic struck over a century ago. And here's what Planet Money host Cardiff Garcia said about that. But the question of just how much to enforce social distancing and for how long is one that is being asked by countries all throughout the world right now. And they are arriving at different answers, just like American cities were arriving at different answers back in 1918. So it's worth keeping in mind that we have run this experiment with a global pandemic before. Back then, the places that limited the spread of the virus early also ended up limiting the economic damage. And yet, it now seems like we are running the experiment all over again. certainly does. One significant difference back then, though, was the lack of mass media. Save for newspapers, it wasn't possible to get the same advice out widely when it really mattered, and that's one of the reasons why individual cities' responses in the US were inconsistent and often ineffective 100 years ago. But now that we have news media that are almost ubiquitous, spreading the Unite to Fight COVID-19 message and critical information on how to do it is much more effective However, it also means the voices of those warning we may have to choose between our livelihoods and the lives of others are much louder as well.